Six years ago, I remember going in interview for my dream job, working for InterVarsity, the college mission org that I currently work for. And by that time, I had volunteered with the ministry for about three years and felt pretty confident going into the interview that it was more or less a formality. But then I clearly remember when our researcher, aka my boss's boss's boss, asked me a question that took me completely off guard. It was like a deer in the headlights type of moment. He asked, Tim, when in the last year have you taken a step of faith that you considered risky? Now, don't get me wrong, in terms of faithfulness, I was consistent in my personal life with Jesus, in my job, in my ministry, in my relationships, uh, that type of faith, but in many ways, it wasn't risky at all. In fact, it was very safe. The ministry work that I was doing was so structured, it actually didn't lend itself to taking any huge risk. In fact, I realized I didn't need to. And mentored, they were the ones who took the risks. They're the ones who met new people during outreach. They invited non-Christians to the Bible studies to check out Jesus. Well, I could just uh, supervise them. But then I realized it was a bit of an existential moment for me coming to terms that there was this inconsistency of how can I lead others into where I wasn't personally going myself. And now in that interview, I actually did you know, recall an answer that was true and that was satisfactory, um, even to myself to a degree. Uh, but it just causes to well up in me that when I think about my faith life, I do ask this question, when was the last time that I took a step of faith that involved risk, that involved a cost, that involved that, involved that trusting God would come through? And so I present the question to you. In the last two years, when have you taken a step of faith? One that requires trust in God. One that may require sacrifice or cost. One that required taking a risk. Today's sermon is titled, Risky Faith. And this Advent season, we're going through the series, Fierce Faith, Lessons from the Biblical Women of Advent. Now, if we're to look at the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, go to the first chapter, the first book, it begins to set up the life of Jesus, and this is how it begins. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham, the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother... Now, here's the interesting thing. All of these genealogies list who the father and the son, the male of the family are. In verse 3, there's something interesting. It includes the mother, Tamar, in this genealogy. In fact, if you were to look at all of Matthew 1, there are five women included in this genealogy. There's Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Jesus' mother, Mary. And I feel like it begs the question, why? If the standard of the day was to list the fathers and the sons in this genealogy, why include the women? Why would there be something so countercultural in this genealogy? Now, one thing that comes to mind is Matthew was writing this gospel primarily to a Jewish audience. 
And one women is that most of them are foreigners. They were not ethnically Jewish in this line to the Messiah. Another thing that's very interesting about Matthew is this is the same with these words. Make disciples of all nations. I find it interesting that the final words of Jesus say all nations and yet the beginning of Matthew all nations make up Jesus' ancestry. Now, we'll continue this conversation about this genealogy as the series progresses into the Advent season, but I think we should take a look at the story of Tamar and Judah and see what it has to say to our lives today. And honestly, for me, I've never gone to church and heard a sermon preached on the story of Judah and In fact, many Genesis Bible studies I've been a part of this over. And I want to say that this is actually a very confusing story, and you need to hear me better so I get two times the microphones. <laughs> For a lot of biblical stories, you read and, and you could almost hear Jesus saying, go and do likewise. I'll just say this, the story about Tamar and Judah plays out more like HBO's Game of Thrones than it does VeggieTales. So we are going into a PG-13 story, and um, you may be just thinking afterwards, what did Tim just read? But anyway, let me give us a little bit of context before we jump in. So this passage happens right in the middle of the story of Joseph. Uh, you know, the, the one who's the favorite son of Jacob, who has 11 brothers, who's able to see dreams, who gets a very multicolored coat. But then we see that his brothers get jealous. They try to kill him. They sell him off to slavery. In fact, it was his brother Judah who suggested that. This story is sandwiched right after they sell him into slavery, but before we get a glimpse into Joseph's life in Egypt. And as I said before, Judah is one of Joseph's oldest brothers. But let's go to the passage, Genesis chapter 38. It's a bit of a long one. At this time, Judah left his brothers and went to, down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son whose name was Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, and so the Lord put him to death. Then Onan said to then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in with her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, 
So the men who were shearing his sheep and his friend Hira, the Adullamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on the way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and sat down at the entrance of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? she asked. I'll send you a young goat for my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who is beside the road in Enam? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So I went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her to this young goat, but you didn't find her. After three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Sheila. And, she, and he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there are twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it to his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he withdrew his hand, his brother came out and she said, so this is how you have broken out, and he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out and he was named Zerah. The word of the Lord. Now, I will say this off the front. This is not a go and do likewise passage. <laughs> there's a lot of deception. There's a lot of sleeping around. There's a lot going on here. Do not go and do likewise. I think oftentimes, though, that is our instinct whenever we read the Bible. We read it and ask, how does this speak to our lives today? But before we can do what the Bible says, we have to look back at what the Bible was saying to the people and culture the day it was written, to the original audience to who it was written to. And so if we look at this passage, Judah, he goes away from his brothers, he starts his own family among Canaanites, he has three sons, and his oldest wife has a wife, or his oldest son has a wife named Tamar, and then God kills him. Now, it doesn't say why, we're just left to question, just he was wicked in the Lord's sight, and so the Lord killed him. So then Tamar is given to the next oldest brother, 
And Judah asked him to fulfill his duty to raise offspring for his now-deceased older brother. And this is one thing that's important to know, especially about this culture back in this day. Verse 8, the father Judah is saying, you need to fulfill your duty. And this is part of the Leverate Law. A law based on the custom that if the eldest son were married and died without having children, the next brother in line was to marry his wife and on his brother's behalf bear children that would carry on the family line. There are also some inheritance rights that were there. Um, but this custom was not only just to hold up the family line, but is also practically put in place so that women who are widowed would have some types of protection so that they would not be vulnerable. But then we see what happens. The second oldest brother, Onan, he dies for avoiding this duty, for avoiding this custom. And now what's supposed to happen is Tamar is part of the family. She's supposed to stay with that family. And she's supposed to wait until Sheila, the youngest, is of age and to be married to him. But here's the interesting thing. What does Judah do instead? He sends her away. Maybe he thinks that she's cursed or she's bad luck. You know, two out of three sons are dead. I don't want the third one to be either. But perhaps out of fear or self-preservation, he sends her away, which he is not supposed to do. And we see that for the first half of the story, Tamar has a very passive role, and she's literally being passed around from one person to the next. It's like, eldest son, second eldest son, okay, now go back to your father. She has literally no control over her life at all. In fact, back in these days, women were treated more like property than actual people. And back in these days, even through the time of Jesus, a woman's testimony was not valid in a court of law. In other words, women throughout this time and culture had no voice. But this is also the point where we see Tamar take action, where she takes a huge risk you see, time passes, but the writing's on the wall. She is not going to be given Sheila as a husband. And I can imagine that she sees where this path is going to lead. She's going to be a widow. She's never going to have a family. When her family dies, she won't have any inheritance rights. She's probably going to have to beg. She may even have to sell herself in order to survive. But then she takes things into her own hands. She ends up sleeping with Judah, her father-in-law, taking his cord and seal and staff as collateral. And then he sends his son to give the payment, but, you know, she's gone. But three months later, the news spreads that she is pregnant and guilty of prostitution. Now, here's another interesting thing about this dynamic between Tamar and Judah. According to Jewish law, the death penalty is called not just for prostitution, but also for adultery and fornication. So isn't it interesting that both Judah and Tamar are involved in this act, yet Tamar is the only one who's getting accused? Isn't it crazy that Tamar has to go through all of these lengths, including risking her own life, in order to have what we'd consider a normal life? A family, a household, the means to be able to survive, even thrive. Now, it seems crazy that she is fighting this constant uphill battle where the stakes are against her, and then Judah seems to just be able to skate by. But then at the end, with the cord, the seal, and the staff in hand, she turns the tables on Judah, 
and he conceived. She is more righteous than I. And this word righteous, it comes from the Hebrew word tzedak. And it could mean in the right, or living rightly, or living justly. That she was more justified in her actions than Judah was. So that's not to say that everything she does was righteous, but she did the more just act in what she did than what he did. And so I want to ask this question. How does this passage intersect our lives and culture today? One thing I do see is even though we've moved from a lot of these archaic customs and traditions like patrilineal property rights and family lines and moved you know, women have now the right to vote, to work, to have positions of leadership. I do think that in our society today, we have a long ways to go in terms of the sexism and bias that still exists. You know, I have friends, colleagues, I've heard so many stories about their uphill battles, the biases that they face. And so what if we took a look at a glimpse of this in our society, things that happen in our workplace, so there was a Newsweek story that was picked up about Nicole Halberg and Martin Snyder, uh, we'll call them Marty, and basically what happened was they were this uh, consultant company that did a lot of resume building and everything, and one time Nicole and Martin were working with the same client, but then she had to pass them over to Martin. What ended up happening was Martin was like, why is this client so difficult to work with? Like, everything I'm doing is being questioned. Um, it seems so, his tone is so condescending. And then he realized because they're doing a shared email account, the signature line had Nicole in it. And so they did a little experiment. They traded emails for a week. And what they told their clients was they're like, oh, um, well, just to let you know, we are going to be changing you with one of our other employees. But nothing really changed. The only thing that changed was their email signature, whether it's signed by Nicole or by Marty. And this is what Marty said. This week was horrible. Everything I asked or suggested was questioned. Clients I could do in my sleep were condescending. One even asked me if I was single. Nicole, on the other hand, said, I had a great week. I'm not going to lie. People were more receptive, taking me seriously. They knew, they assumed they knew what I was doing. I didn't have to prove it to them. She saw fewer suggestions and fewer doubts. So the workplace could be one place. Another could be our public spaces. There was something that I saw in social media of this meme, and it asked this question both to men and women, what steps do you take on a regular basis to prevent yourself from being sexually assaulted? And on the women's side, there were several different answers. I have a big dog, I make sure that I go in groups, I make sure that I have my keys or a can of mace. There are a, a list of all these things to do if you could put up the, uh, the picture. And the fact was, this list is actually so big, this list isn't enough. They had to make another slide for the next part of this list. So you can go to the next one too. But then they asked the same question to men. And this was what the men's response was. Oh, this is still the women's list. So it's three slides, three slides worth. Nothing. I don't think about it. This could be in our workplaces. It could be in our public spaces. 
But I want to say, it could even happen in our churches too. Ranging from abuses, from me too becoming church too, to also more lighter things where there's a bias against women, seeing them behind the pulpit or in leadership, where their opinions and their voices aren't taken seriously. And you know, I'm speaking from personal life too. I have had sexism and had bias in my own life. I remember right after college, a group of us, men and women, decided to be intentional in living in a missional community. And then I got called out by one of the women in the group who said, Tim, you know, whenever you're hanging out with the other guys and you're talking about us, it can be very condescending. In fact, when you talk about certain topics, um, we get the impression that you think that we're all stupid. Now, that was never my intent, but as I started retracing all of my steps and things that I said, the jokes that we made, I realized that I am not immune to this, even though I have good intentions, even though I am part of a church community. And I want to say this, that this passage can speak into our lives today of what it means to have faith, courage, and initiative, to both own up, but also expose failure, shortcomings and sin, but hopefully respond accordingly with the hope of restoration and redemption. And so maybe it's time for us, us as a community, us as a church, even our leaders to own up to our failures, shortcomings and sins. In fact, I'm sick and tired of hearing this excuse that boys will be boys. It's time for boys to be men and own up to their actions. Instead of, instead of responding with defensiveness, memory lapses, or qualifications for their behavior, what if these were actually sobering moments of admission, restoration, and redemption? And I also understand this too, that not all men fit this picture, not all women fit this picture. I hear and understand that. And this isn't a blanket statement across the board, but let's not sweep it under the rug just because it may have not been something that we personally have experienced. And so I want to say this to the men in the room. Men, listen to the women around you in your lives. Be advocates and be allies. And not in the sense that you are the knight in shiny armor, that you are coming to the rescue, but sometimes when others can be condescending or objectifying our sisters in Christ, have the courage to speak up for them. And for women, I encourage you to speak up. Back then, Tamar had no voice, and so she had to fight for that. This is what faith looks like, and I encourage you also to be able to speak up. And I pray that the men here will stand by your side. Now, one thing I do want to say is, gender dynamics are in play in this passage, but I don't believe that's the only thing we can learn from it. You see, the faith, the courage, the initiative that we see to both own up but also expose failure, shortcoming, and sin, but with the hope of restoration and redemption, I believe we see that also in Judah. You see, this story changes the trajectory of Judah's life and his family line. This is a story within a story, and if we don't see the bigger picture, we may, look, we may miss that. If we take a look at Judah, there's actually not a lot going for him. He's the fourth eldest child, so he's not getting any birthright inheritance. He's not getting any blessing. And in terms of his character, there's really not much to show for it. We already saw that he went back on customs by sending Tamar back to her family 
But then he gives her an empty promise. I'm going to give you to my youngest son. But he never intended that. And even when he said that he was paying a prostitute, he sends his friend to do it discreetly so that he would not lose face in the community. And then his hypocrisy is on full display when he takes a moral high ground, saying that we need to burn her for prostitution. Now, death by burning was actually reserved for the harshest and cruelest punishments back in that day. All of these things happen, but then he has a reckoning. She is more righteous than I. She is more in the right than I. She is more just than I. His admission here, but also his decision not to sleep with her again, may indicate a turning point in his life and the redemption of his character. This is a story within a story, and I remember the first time I saw the first Lord of the Rings movie, and it ended, some people in that room did not know it was a trilogy, and they're like, wait, they're just all going away, that's it? If we take a look at the bigger picture, this is what we see. This is Genesis chapter 38. In chapter 43, we see that Judah starts stepping up almost as if he is the older brother. He takes initiative and responsibility to start moving the family in order to get provision while there's a famine. And in chapter 44, when Joseph is about to take Benjamin away from them, he knows that he is responsible and he says, take me instead. Finally, what we see in verse 49, when Jacob is giving a blessing to all the brothers, he goes to the eldest brother, Reuben, and he actually doesn't give him the blessing. He says, you slept with one of my maidservants, and that's what you're going to live with. And then he gets to the next older two, Levi and Simeon, who should have got the blessing, but he passes over them because they massacre an, an entire town in rage and revenge because the head of that tribe rape their sister. But then he comes to Judah and says, you are the lion. Judah becomes included in the Davidic line and the Messianic line. And I don't know if this would have happened without Tamar. Without ha Tamar having the courage to speak up, without her having the faith to stand and fight for what was right. And so I want to end with these two points. For us, it is never too late to make things right with God. You see, we get glimpses of the gospel message in this passage before Jesus even comes to the picture. Who is the one who cares for the marginalized? Jesus does. Who is the one who says, take me instead? Jesus did. Who is the one who offers us grace and redemption so that we can change the trajectory of our lives? Jesus. You see, there is nothing anyone in this room can do to disqualify you from the grace of God. And the second point is this, our faithfulness can influence and impact the path of others around us. I don't think Tamar was thinking about Judah or this messianic line at all. I think she was just fighting for what was right, fighting to survive, and she was justified in doing so. And yet, it brought about this life-changing moment from Judah. Oftentimes, we can see things very narrowly in terms of our faith, our sin, and the impact it has around other people. And sometimes it makes it easier to justify not taking a step of faith, not taking a risk. Sometimes in, in our sin, we can rationalize it and think, I'm not hurting anyone. 
But as we see in this passage, our faithfulness can influence and can impact the path of others around it. And so, what will you do? At the beginning of the sermon, I asked, last year, in the last year, when have you taken a step of faith that requires trust in God, that required you taking a risk? But now I want to ask you this, for this upcoming year, maybe even this upcoming month, what is one way you can take a step of faith that could be a little risky, that could involve some type of cost or sacrifice, but it requires trust in God? Let me pray for us. Dear God, I pray that this word, to have a risky faith, to be able to stand up for what is right, for what is just, I pray, Lord, that it would uh, be a word that goes to our heart, bears fruit that's 30, 60, 100 fold. I pray all these things as we enter into communion for today. In Jesus' name, amen.